Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Good to be with you, everybody. It is Monday, July 18th. Hard to believe we're racing through the summer months, but we are, and it's good to be with us. Appreciate you, and I well, just really want to say thank you to all the listeners that make this a way, one of their ways in which they stay on top of all of what's going on in the industry. This broadcast was, again, created, or is created, was, is, and will be created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we're the proud recipient of the of the Innovation Award from Progress in Lending. So thank you to everyone there. I want to say a special uh, thank you to Logan Motoshami, who will be joining us in the Hot Topic segment. Or the, any of you that have listened to this program on a regular basis, you know who Logan is. We'll be talking about, specifically about housing, giving a housing update. We're going to be talking um, some of the, we're going to debunk some of these theories. We're going to talk about, perm, you know, uh, economic, you know, bears that have been out there, the perma bears as Logan refers to them, why they've been wrong, what's the what's the why has their focus been off? Is it really the feds? I mean it's just a lot of great information. So as I was saying just before the program started, one of the things I like about, you know, people now I like being around humble people. Uh, and and Andy Shell and Logan have this in common. They're wicked smart and they have a way of challenging authority and those, and they're not afraid to buck and stand up and respectfully. That's the key word here. They respectfully buck and uh, the what conventional wisdom. And I love how they do it. So we've invited Logan to come back and talk about the housing market. Uh, very excited to have him on and give him, have him share his comments. So we're looking forward to having Logan Motoshami join us again. It's, I've been looking forward to this segment for some time. Always preparing for these segments is, you know, sometimes you're learning things, and then sometimes you're just getting excited because it's, it confirms things you already know, and that's in the case with Logan. Uh, I, Logan, first of all, thank you so much for rejoining us on the broadcast here. Uh, we've had you on, and we always have you have a loyal set of followers. When we put the word out that you would be joining us, we had a lot of people responding saying, Excited to be having hearing Logan's thoughts again. So welcome back, Logan. Very excited to be here. Well, it's good to have you here. Um, we're, we're, I want to start off by talking a little bit about something that uh, is uh, is uh, the way you challenge things. I mean, that you. How did people? For those that do not know you, and our audience has grown dramatically since we you spoke last spoke on the program or a guest on the program. Uh, how did you get into this? You are not an economist. You're a loan originator. But you have – your analysis is as thorough, complete, informed, and you put out as much information. I feel like I'm talking to some of the PhD. How did you get here? Let's talk a little bit about that just briefly. You know, I, I got into finance about 20 years ago uh, before I actually started working full-time in the mortgage business. I got an interest in the stock market. So naturally, my kind of brain tendency is to track data. And, you know, anybody who really wants to thrive in anything they do, they, they kind of fully engage in everything they want to learn about uh, the job they're doing. So <clears throat> naturally, I became a data junkie. And in that process, you almost begin to almost train yourself just like how an economist would 
if you track every single economic data point and want to learn about that. So when I started writing uh, about housing economics, really, it was a financial website just wanted me to write a, write some uh, op-ed pieces. But I and realized that, that if I did that website. Let's that was that Benzing, ben, yeah, Benzinga.com back in 2010. So then I, I decided just to, you know what, why don't I just create my own blog? And then I started writing articles uh, each month. But then I went on Facebook. And basically what I do on Facebook is track and chart and, and put out every single economic data information you could possibly have, not only just in America, but, but out in the you world are, as well. You- well, not only that, you've got some great pictures you put up from historical stuff. I love this stuff. And for, for those that are not connected to Logan on Facebook, how can they do so? I highly recommend you that. You just, just go to Facebook and type in my name, Logan Motoshami. You know, we've got over 7,000 people there. And, yes, it's just uh, – it's if you like economics and, yeah, if you like historical photos as well, because I'm just a totally big nerd. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what right. it is. There's, there's no selfie yeah, there. It's really pretty much charts and uh, – well, you, you, there's one selfie you did when you're on the treadmill working out, and it was the bookmark. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, there's a lot of you're challenging, and I like again how you respectfully challenge many loud voices, big voices, respected voices, and it's not to take a shot at any of them. I love the fact how someone like yourself, Andy, does this well. Is you go out and challenge conventional wisdom, and you do it in such a way that really gets people engaged. I mean, they didn't know who you were. They they try to Google you and, well, what Ph.D., where did you graduate from, blah, blah, blah. And you just go at people, with, not at them in a negative sense, in a respectful sense, but you go at facts and things that they're putting forth, and you challenge it. One of the things that's out there, I mean, Harry S. Dent is one of my favorite guys. Peter Schiff is another guy I've listened to. But Dent was, for the longest time, one of my favorite guys. He got it so right there initially with the, the his first book that came out. He called things right, and many of us hooked on to, well, he must be right about all of it. But that's not the case. He's one of the perma bears out there that you talk about. But why did – so define what you mean by a perma-bear. What, who are they? What are those folks? And why did they get it so wrong? Well, one of the things that's happened recently is that uh, yellow journalism sells. And because of social media, because of the ability to people to uh, uh, basically give their own points of views, yellow journalism, people can just say whatever they want to believe, and there's a group of people that will always think America's horrible – uh, there's some conspiracy on government data, and pretty much just lie consistently. Uh, some people do it for vested belief. You know, uh, some people have trades they want to push. Some people are just anti-American demagogues. They just they're just going to cry about America every single day. But one thing I've noticed is that if you follow economics, and I'm talking post World War II, there's a certain trend that has to happen for a recession. And in 2014, I realized that most of these perma bears are just saying things because they know their followers just want to hear it. I'm not even sure if they even believe it, but because of their popularity is doom and gloom, they know that their vested followers have to, you know, have to hear them talk negatively. And then I thought to myself, you know, after 2014, we're, we're, we're going to start to go after these people. As much as I've been very critical of the housing bulls and these people who are, had high GDPs and, and high tenure notes, uh, yield. I thought it's time to kind of go reverse. And a lot of my economic stuff this year, what I write about, are actually more economic articles than they are just uh, than housing. So it's right to go after both sides. 
And let's be honest, the perma bears, the people that have been calling for recession, crash, have had the worst eight years post-World War II. And I'm going to tag an article to this interview with names, faces, and calls and data to prove that these people have no idea what they're talking about, and they know it. They just do it so people can clickbait their materials because there's this group of people in this world who will only clickbait doom and gloom stuff. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that it, you know, you know they, they say uh, uh, salacious images uh, uh, draw people, get people negativity when you're out there putting that out there, it'll draw people. But I wrote, just, I wrote an article this year headlining, the U.S. economy is about to crash. And in that article was every single data point to show that the, that the perma bears were not only wrong, they were terribly wrong, but it was the most popular article I wrote only because of the headline. And I yeah. knew that the people would you, click on it thinking they were going to crash. But no, it was an April Fool's joke saying, ah, no, you guys all got it wrong. Recessions are a function of an overinvestment thesis that creates a supply and demand imbalance that tends to happen when the Fed is raising rates to fight inflation. None of these things are present in the U.S. economy, and this is why the recession hasn't happened. And I, and I don't even want to change the people's minds who listen to Harry Dent or Peter Schiff or Raul Paul or, or you know, Mark Faber. Or Jim, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to change minds. I just want to teach people that if you really want to look for recessions, there are just a few things that you have to see happen first before we even whisper the oh. word recession. Well, that's a great segue, and I'm going to toss the mic over to Andy Shell. Andy? Yes. Hey, Logan. Thanks for being on the show. Boy, there's so much to talk about. <clears throat> I love your website too, by the way. I've Thank I've you. been I've been uh noodling around on loganmotoshami.com and clicking on some of your recent articles including the housing bubble of 2016 and also the Britex article which I think is really interesting. Um and including in the Britex article you got a whole bunch of charts down at the bottom. I I'm going into this level of detail cuz I want the listeners to follow with me. So when you get a chance, go to this website, go to that article, scroll down, and there's amazing charts that show trends and activity. I think the, the JOLT reports are a really interesting chart that you've put together that shows the, the trend of information. So the, the main topic I wanted to talk to you about over the next few minutes is uh, what to look for in a recession, but I also want to tag on to that a comment from you about the impact of the impact of international negative interest rates on U.S. mortgage lending over the next several years. So I'm not well, sure where you want to start, but in, in terms it. of a recession, it, it's it's we'll we'll cut it down to two basically main points. Uh, leading economic indicators have to fall at least four to six months, and unemployment claims have to rise, you know, from a low base. And we have our low. I mean, we are at 43 year lows in unemployment claims. If unemployment claims get to 322, uh, 323K on a four-week moving average, not a headline number, then we could start talking about, well, maybe the recession is happening because companies have to start laying people off because the demand isn't there and they, they're concerned about profit margins. None of that has ever happened in the last eight years. We've had a downward spiral. In fact, the only thing that actually created a, a short blip in unemployment claims was the Sandy flood. Uh, the oil crash didn't really change the curve at all. The commodity crash did it. We've had 17 international crises since 2011, China, Japan, Europe, twice. 
Brazil, Russia, it doesn't matter. We are the United States of America. We have over 100 million workers that only work on domestic demand curve economics in a service sector society on consumption. We're fine. We handled every single crisis and it's been the most stable economy, actually the most stable U.S. economy in over the last 50 years. Wow. So we're, 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 we're safe for a while because we haven't had that happen yet. We no, had we that. haven't had it. Inflation is rising. Um, that's, I think that's the thing that we, people need to start keeping an eye out. There is no deflation happening in America. Core inflation is rising. Headline inflation is going to start rising because oil has gone up. ECI wage inflation is at 3.6% year-over-year for job switchers, which is, goes into the JOLTS data. It's at 4.3%, a cycle high, which is right where it was before the 2007 uh, uh, collapse happened. So wages are going up. Inflation is picking up. That's typically when the Fed starts to move. We're not there yet for them to move because negative rates, the entire world has demographic deflationary factors. And we, there's no inflation out there, and, and that is, is is another factor on keeping you know our 10-year low, which is if you look at my 2015 and 2016 prediction, there is a one handle always because inflation is not rampant anymore. So, do you think that the negative interest rates and and do you does that mean MBSs could come lower and? Are we going to have another refi wave, or what's going to happen with I, I don't think I, I don't believe in a refi wave. Uh, if we look at if you look at total supply and volume in 2012, that was the last time we had a mega refinance wave. And in that time, actually, you know, the only two times that we've had 10 years go uh, to about the 130 level is both in European uh, economic crisis issues. And both times we get there and we shoot right back up. I think the mm-hmm. 160 level is really where the 10 years should be at. And we work off of that. But below that, you need some international crisis. And we're not there very long. Uh, I, for us to get another refi way, we need to go below 1% and stay there for uh, a few days to capture the real supply of people that can refinance. Because if you look at this year, even though the 10-year got to the lowest point of this cycle, we're slightly above 2015 levels in terms of refinance volume because – We've been here before. In 2012, we were here. A lot of people have refinanced. Rates have to go lower to get a big kind of 2012 volume wave. Hmm. Well, one other quick question, and then I'll, I'll throw it over to Joe. And that's uh, I'm, this is a bit winging it, so we, these aren't prepared questions. Um, in, in your article about BritX, there's the JOLTS report going back to 2000. And in that chart, it, it charts openings, hires, quits, the layoffs and stuff. And what I thought was interesting is that hires tend to be uh, track correlated to but above job openings. So there's always hires are in excess of job openings. But now, since mid-2015, it's, it's inverted. The job openings exceed the hires. And, again, I'm, uh, this is totally throwing it at you off the cuff. Does that give you any concern? Is that look like my my biggest contention with people is that the great American lie was that 95 million Americans are out of work. That is completely untrue. Uh, we have a labor shortage today. Uh, yes. The labor participation rate is you know being at 62 percent does not mean that millions of Americans are out of work. We're eight years into the cycle. We have over 154 million working Americans. We're missing only 2.7 million prime age labor force. Americans from the last cycle, and, and a good portion of those are women who have said they want to take care of their kids. Um, 
it's not surprising that two months ago at 5.84 million was the highest job openings ever recorded in human history. And it's in every single sector in the U.S., Ah. construction, government jobs, manufacturing even. Um, I I wrote an article about robots aren't taking all the jobs, and I specifically outlined every job sector in America. We don't have the labor to fill in these jobs, and which makes sense because prime age labor force growth peaked in 2007 here, unlike the 1980s and 1990s. And right now we're too young and we're too old. That's going to change in a few years. We're going to have the millennials are going to come into the workforce, and um, you're going to have more and more uh, uh, older Americans leaving. When they come in, we'll, we'll have the ability to fill in some of these jobs. But right now, everybody who's told you that 95 million Americans are out of work, unemployment claims being this low, it doesn't mean they're, – they're lying to you because they're anti-American demagogues. And they know that their listeners or whoever, whoever follows their work – won't do the research to see, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. We only lost 50, less than 15 million in the Great Recession. We're well over that in the jobs career. How, we, how are 95 billion people out of work? Because it's not that's true. So, yeah, you know, that's such a fascinating thing because I want to get into that, especially the comment, their anti American negative uh, rhetoric. I, you know, I'm wondering if it even gets a little more political than that. I wonder which, if, if you're a Republican, you're looking at the numbers one way. If you're a Democrat, if a Democrat's on the White House, you're looking at the numbers another way. So I'm really interested, in and I want to get into that in just a minute. But before we do, I want to go, I want to toss the mic over to Joe and talk, get more a little more into the housing part of this thing. Joe? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've realized a tremendous improvement in housing uh, and home prices and got to be a lot of factors to that supply and demand certainly uh one of those uh, and low interest rates is one of those and so uh logan to what extent do you think that the housing price appreciation that we've seen here in 2016 is uh is a concern and and what would cause it to be a concern here's here's how i look at home prices in this cycle. Home prices are really a function of inventory because millions of people buy homes a year. That's never going to be a question in doubt. Uh, This housing cycle has had the worst demand curve for mortgage buyers we've ever seen, uh, even at the lowest interest rates uh, curve we've ever seen post-World War II. But it's shelter. People buy homes. Uh, Mortgage purchase application data is at the highest level in this cycle with nominal prices back up to the housing bubble years. Now, adjusting to inflation, home prices aren't back to where they were in 2006, but people are buying homes with mortgages at the highest level in a cycle with prices this high. I don't see that as a concern in terms of a housing bubble being formated because a housing bubble or any kind of bubble to me needs speculation. Uh, in, in the housing bubble before, we had speculation on, on exotic debt that people could not actually afford their homes. And in 2003 to 2006, you see the data. We had mass cash-out booms. We had people buying homes with 0% down stated incomes. We don't have that. There's mortgage demand. It's not very strong. People are buying homes. It's the best home buying profile we'll ever see in this country, ever in any other cycle. These people have fixed low-cost wages, I mean low-cost rates, Against rising wages, the only way they'll lose a home is if they lost their job. And that's a a function of inventory not being uh, at six months or above six months is because housing is very unaffordable. That's that's an issue. I don't think the affordability index that we all use from economists is is a good one in this cycle. But 
I'm, I'm not concerned in terms of it creating a bubble top where people like Harry Dent are running around telling people prices are going to drop 40 to 67% in some areas. I, 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 you need a recession. You need these homeowners to lose their jobs. One third of the homes in the cycle have been bought with cash that can't go into a distressed supply. Uh, so it, it's, it's completely different from the last cycle to this cycle. We have the best home buyers in the cycle, and they are buying homes at the highest levels of the cycle with prices back at the nominal highs of 2006. So, Logan, where do you see it going from here? I mean, we, that's, as long the, that's as where we've in, been. Yeah, as long as inventory stays below six months, which I think is a function of an economic cycle, prices still have legs. Once you start getting a recession, people lose their jobs, they'll have to put their homes onto market. There's where you'll start to see a price decline because we've never had, since 1996 when prices started to take off in this country, we've never had six months of inventory outside of the housing bust years. So I'm not in the camp that tells you low inventory is keeping home sales. I'm in the complete opposite camp. Demographics should have told you from 2007 that the housing demand curve was going to be soft from 2008 to 2019. There's no more exotic debt left, so whoever owns it can own it this time. And um, these people tend to be high income, high educated. You know, when people tell you that, oh, uh, there's too, Americans have too much debt. We have about $14.5 trillion of debt. We have over $102 trillion of financial assets over This is kind of the best of the economic food chain. They'll be fine. If they lose their job, late, late cycle lending, low down payments, those are the people that you have to worry about because those people have no equity to sell. They usually go into distress. It's back to a normal housing cycle, unlike, you know, 2003 to 2006. So and the concern will be if, you know, prices keep on rising for some reason when inventory is higher. I don't think that will be the case. It hasn't been the case for the last, you know, few years. Uh, inventory has been below six months. That's the kind of level you need to see on a national basis. Do you see the Fed uh, playing a role in, in changing the direction of the housing market? Anytime I, I, I don't think the Fed has much power. Um, the long end of the market has been – bond market has been going down since 1981. Uh, the Fed uh, – you know, you can, some people can make the case that the Fed is maybe slightly behind the curve because inflation is rising and they're still at a quarter, zero, you know, just a quarter Fed funds rate. But, you know, you have $14 trillion in negative rates out there. The world economy can't handle a strong dollar. I mean, let's just face it. The dollar got stronger in 2014 and 2015. It sent a lot of these export countries into a recession. And, you know, negative rates are here to stay and and low rates are here to stay for decades to come. Uh, Unless you see inflation rising, because if you look at long-term rates and inflation, they move hand in hand. The best case for inflation is really when our young labor force, you know, in years 2020 to 24 come into the marketplace and because of that demand, they'll create inflation. So I don't, I don't see the, I don't, I don't see the Fed being that important, because they're 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 really moving where inflation is. So I'm not in the mm-hmm. camp that thinks the Fed can control the housing market. All right, back to you, Dave. All right, thank you, Joe. Uh, yeah, one of the things I want to talk a little bit more. I'm getting a lot of comments coming in to me about the labor participation rate and wage growth. There's a lot of us have locked in. Me too. I mean, I'll be honest. I look at the uh, when when you look at the unemployment. You what, we, what's the number? We we track the that's published all the time. Is that you 
U3 or which one's that There's one? There's U3, but I think a lot of people are 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 looking at the U6. We're fixated rate. on the U6, isn't it? Yeah. So the U6 rate is at 9.8%. It's fallen down from I think a high. It's a little bit over 17%. So let's let's look at who's not working. Okay. So when we look at it, college educated people are at about 2.4% unemployment rate. The recent college grads are about 4.1%. Who lost their jobs in the Great Recession outside of real estate and finance? Service sector jobs, high school dropouts, yeah. non-college educated Americans. So a lot of these people are the people who aren't working. If you look at the data, which I don't, I don't think a lot of people do, it's a lot of high school dropouts. It's a lot of criminally active people who are not in jail. It's a lot of drug addicts who are not in rehab. And then it's the group that says, you know what? I'm taking care of my kids. I'm not working. We have no right to tell yeah. them to work. Uh, so that's, that's really the function because in this cycle, ages 17 to 29 are massive, and ages 49 to 65 are massive. Older people are working as a percentage at the highest levels we've ever seen. So it's not them. If they're leaving the workforce, the other ones are working. So when you, when you count civilian labor force ages 16 to 65, do we really expect – ages 16 to 24 to work full-time jobs, leave school? No. That's why the yeah. prime age labor force growth, which is running at 81%, that's the, that's the number people should focus on. It's missing 2.7 million people. Some of those people are on disability. Some of those people went back to school. Some of those people are home taking care of their children. And then there's a group of people which we as a country need to invest in, our government does not invest in our people because federal debt is a political weapon. They tell you federal debt is bad. Federal debt will create inflation. Federal debt has been growing for many years, and inflation is at the lowest level. This is a political weapon, and it's starting to impact our economy because we don't want to invest because we, as Republicans or as Democrats, use federal debt as a weapon, and it's, it's embarrassing. Our domestic investment from government in this cycle has been terrible. So, um, oh, man. you know, that gets, that's a great segue right into where I want to go next. I mean, you look at the future housing interest rates, and we've got the Republican uh, convention starting this week in Cleveland today. And then you, so I would like to get your thoughts on a Trump presidency versus a Hillary Clinton presidency. Any insights? And, and, I mean, just lay it out there. That's one thing I enjoy about you. And we may not agree on all the stuff and data points. But you always give me to think, though. And I, a lot of times I've come around going, you know what, Logo is right on this. So talk about the, what, what we can expect to hear or if, if, in a Trump presidency. One thing I would anticipate, he knows how to leverage things. All of his companies are highly leveraged. We're going to see American debt. Where you think Bush or Obama or anyone before him added a lot of debt, I think Trump would just skyrocket our debt. Your thoughts? Well, here's the thing. Majority of the debt that's going to be created uh, in this country comes from uh, entitlements. Entitlements will not be touched by Trump. Trump knows this. Trump has actually gone against Republican principles that have been, you know, trying to keep federal debt and state debt down away. He doesn't care. He, if, if he actually knows his own budget, federal debt's going to blow up. And actually, I don't see that as a bad thing. Because unless the debt actually creates inflation, which we are the do- we have the dollar, we have the reserve currency, we have the biggest economy in the world, we have the strongest military in the world, we don't we're, we're going to be treated better than anybody on the bond market. So um, expect 
federal debt to blow up. I don't see it as a problem. I don't. I don't know if he's going to be able well, you to. You expect repeal. that to happen? Yeah, I, I I expect that to happen with anybody because I don't think I don't think either. Yeah, either one of them. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I mean, this is the honest truth. By year 2024, just the uh, federal man, uh, mandatory items, Social Security, Medicare, and net interest, that's going to take up all the government revenue based on a 3% GDP. Just And if, since it's mandatory, any recession that happens now until 2060 will just expand the federal debt higher. And I'm telling you, nothing's going to happen because nothing's happened to Japan. We're never going to catch up to Japan's debt to GDP, and there are <laughs> negative <laughs> rates there are negative they're rates. Negative. I mean, this has been a lie. I'm, I've, I've been a registered conservative Republican. This has been a lie by our party for many decades because federal debt is a weapon, a political weapon that you can use. And Japan is at negative rates, and they have the highest debt to GDP as anybody. So expect federal debt to rise from anybody because I don't think anybody's going to raise taxes, certainly not in the middle class. Nobody's going to raise taxes in the middle class. I think that's one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders – is not getting the nomination because Democrats don't want uh, um, payroll yeah. taxes to increase. Actually, Bernie Sanders was very admirable. He wants to pay for everything. Um, I'm probably the left of Bernie Sanders in terms of free edu- college education. I, I, you, you put 50 or $60 billion a year in the federal budget, it's nothing. Uh, you can do that without raising taxes, and nothing will happen. The world won't come to an end. I just don't think politicians want to risk that because if they do – that means a lot of principles go out the door that they fought for for 30, 40 years. Yeah, so the debt has been growing. Interest rates are at all-time lows. Inflation is, is not you know, present. Um, so I, either Hillary or, or Trump, uh, <clears throat> demographics are going to get better for the U.S. economy in the next cycle. Uh, but Yeah, it's fascinating. We are so out of time, it's not even funny. I love having you on. You do a great job each and every time you come on, and we love having you here. But as you hear the drums start playing in the background, it's signaling we are out of time, and we got to wrap this up. For those that want to read more, be more familiar with you, Logan, again, what are the best places for them to go? Andy already brought up your website, Logan Motoshami. Maybe we should spell that for people. Logan, you want to give us a quick rundown of where people can hear more from you? Facebook, yes, your website, uh, Logan Motoshami, yeah, L-O-G-A-N-M-O-H-T-A-S-H-A-M-I.com, and I will put an, an article with this interview with a lot of charts and data to, to go over kind of the things we've talked about. I'll sign up on Facebook to listen to Logan. You're not going to be bored, I'll tell you that. I really have learned a lot from him. I love his attitude, and I just love you boldly going out and challenging people. Boldly going out where no other people seem to want to go. You do it. You do it well. Good fashion. Thank you so much for being with us, Logan. Great to have you here. Also, thank you out to Joe Farr. You betcha, friend. Also, thank you goes out to Joe Farr, Andy Shell for being here with us, Sam Garcia. appreciate everyone tuning in and telling others about this podcast. Have a great week, everybody. We'll be broadcasting next week live from the CMBA, the California Mortgage Bankers Association's Western Secondary Conference, and we'll be in the Arch MI booth. And our special guest will be Ralph DeFranco. He will be on with us, and he's he's the chief economist for Arch MI. Looking forward to hearing his comments on all of this. Talk to you soon. Have a great week, everybody. See you next week. Thanks very much. Let's hit the wrong one, you know, and looking for a short close. There we go. (laughs) All right. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, 
David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Quoline, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening.